So what makes you think that you're going to be a Christian when you wake up in the morning? What makes you think that you're going to be a Christian when you wake up tomorrow morning? I came across that question in my reading this week, and it kind of jumped off the page to me. And the answer to that question for you is very important when it comes to how you look at the problems happening in our country and in the world. One of the greatest kings in all of history was King David. This is what he said in Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Good little King James word there, ruleth. His power, his authority, it ruleth over all. What makes you think that you're going to be a Christian when you wake up in the morning? You might think, well, I'm a member of Holland Avenue Baptist Church. Hey, I I make good grades in school. I'm, I'm a pretty good athlete. I honor my parents and my teachers and my coaches. I've been faithful to my spouse or or I've, you know, put my kids through school, or I'm very diligent at my job, I'm very trustworthy at work. I I volunteer at charities in the community. I am an honest American, and I work an honest day for an honest wage. Those are fantastic. All of those things are great. But if any of those things are your answer to why you will be a Christian in the morning, more than likely you will not be a Christian in the morning. See, the answer is is much more something along these lines. I have repented of my proud, arrogant, rebellious attitude and sin and actions against the God, the only God who is known as holy, holy, holy. And I've surrendered my life to him through his son, Jesus. And his son, Jesus, he loved me. He gave himself up for me. He bore my sin in his own body on the cross. He saved me. He rescued me. And tomorrow morning, my saving, sovereign, redeeming God, his kingdom will be the kingdom over all kingdoms. And tomorrow morning, he will be ruling over all because his kingdom is forever. That's why I'll be a Christian in the morning. Around 1529, Martin Luther wrote the hymn that we know is a a mighty fortress is our God. And this is the last part of the last verse. Let goods and kindred, let them go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. If you want to hear that with some punch, go YouTube Steve Green's live version of A Mighty Fortress. Not like recently, like, you know, because he's a little older, he probably lost some of those high notes, but man, back in the 80s, man, I think it was like 86 something, oh wow, blow your mind. I'll be a Christian tomorrow morning because I'm believing in and trusting in and relying on and clinging to the God whose kingdom is forever. He ruleth over 
all. All. This week we step into another anniversary of September 11th, 2001. Not long after the tragedies of 9-11, a company developed what is known now as a high-rise emergency chute. It's a parachute that attaches to something in your office. And this is how the company describes the product today. In case of emergency, it offers an ultimate alternative to rescue people from buildings in case of fire, terrorist attack, etc., when no other way of exiting the building is possible and people are under clear and present danger. And then it says this. The chute presents a last chance resort of life-saving in an extremely dangerous emergency situation. I applaud this company for their passion and their purpose that in the days following the tragedy, they were thinking, man, what can we do to help? And they developed a, a really remarkable piece of emergency safety equipment that could save someone's life. But I heard someone in response to that ask the question, can an emergency shoot take away all of the fear of clear and present danger. No, it can't. So besides emergency shoots or emergency precautions or emergency plans, is there any way for us to deal with the difficulties and the trials and the tragedies and the hurts and the fears and the worries of life? Well, we're going to ask King David to help us answer that question. David was about 60 years old when he wrote Psalm 37. So he had experienced some frets and some fears and some frustrations in life. He had experienced some worries and some stress. He had experienced a number of things in his life. In the commercial world, we would say, He knew a thing or two because he had seen a thing or two. Come on, one of y'all should have done the song. Come on. So in 60 years of life, what did David learn? Let's find out. Psalm 37, beginning with verse 1. Do not fret. After 60 years of living on the earth and and living through real-life battles in war, Real-life battles with his family, real-life battles at work and with a kingdom, real-life battles even in his own heart and his own mind. David's advice is this. Don't fret. Don't get worked up. Be cool. Be cool about what? Well, he tells us, look at the next part. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not fret. Do not get worked up. Do not get heated up. When evildoers do what evildoers do. Don't get worked up. Don't, don't fret. We might say, wait a minute. Are we, are we just supposed to, to roll over like a, a lazy watchdog? And, and we see evil people doing evil things and we just go, oh, no, that, that has nothing to do with me. No, not at all. No, first responders, they are trained to respond. They're not trained to react. They're trained to respond. 
So they don't look at, at evil or conflict and look the other way. Their eyes are on it, and they are engaged, and they will respond as they're called upon. You won't see a first responder standing on a chair in some lady's kitchen saying, lady, I can't help you until you find that mouse. I'm not getting down from here until you find that mouse. Why? Because they're not trained to freak out. (laughs) They're not trained to fret. They're trained to respond. They're trained to help. They're trained to help those in need. Christians are called to respond, Not, not just react, but to respond. We don't look at evil in the world and just turn a blind eye and go, oh, that's, that's what the preacher does. You know? We don't just look at evil doers and just go, well, that's, that's someone else's. Deb-. I'll let the first responders deal with that. No, as believers, we've been called to do the opposite of just pass the buck. This is what Jesus said to those who would follow after him. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As believers, we're supposed to be titanium tactical flashlights out in the dark world that we live in. We're supposed to be shining a light into our dark culture, a dark culture that is groping in the dark. They are groping in the dark for something to satisfy. And we're the ones that are supposed to shine the light in such a way that they could see the beauty and the power and the authority and the glory and the love of God. That's that's what we do. That's what we've been called to. But we're not supposed to go over to somebody's car hood and, and slam our tactical flashlight into the hood because we're mad at evildoers. No, we're not supposed to fret. We're not supposed to get worked up. We're supposed to respond, but we're not supposed to freak out. Now, will we freak out every now and then? Yeah, (laughs) we will. I'm pretty good with roaches and spiders and skinks and ladybugs, but you know, when it comes to a random anaconda in my church office, I, I could freak out, you know. If I cruise up in the baptistry one Sunday morning and there's a sneaky crocodile up there, I might freak out, okay? Yeah, amen, that's right, Earl. We're going to have moments where we freak out. It's just going to happen. But the pattern of our life, if our God ruleth over all, should not be that we normally freak out. We should have confidence in the fact that our God ruleth over all and his kingdom is forever. Jesus really set an amazing example of this for us. Fifty days after Jesus rose from the dead, Peter was was preaching a pretty rocking sermon to a whole crowd of people. And in that sermon, he said that Jesus had been nailed to a cross by godless men godless evildoers. And before godless evildoers nailed him to a cross, long before that, other godless evildoers, they brutally beat him. In fact, some people believe that Jesus should have died long before he ever got to the cross because of the intensity of the beatings and the floggings that he experienced. Thirty years after Peter preached that big sermon, he wrote this about Jesus, 1 Peter 1, 21. Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What kind of example did Jesus set? Peter goes on, verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. If there's anybody who can utter a threat, it's Jesus. Hey, man, you may not want to hit me anymore. You know, this could go bad for you. He, he could do that. You know, He uttered nothing. He just received the punishment for me and for you. What did he do? Peter goes on, verse 23. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus kept saying in his own heart and mind, you know what? My Father ruleth over all. My Father, his kingdom, it's forever. My Father is the last and only one who has the last judgment call on evildoers. Now, Jesus set an example for us to follow, and that example is to not fret. Be cool. David expands on this a little bit. Look at verse 1, the last part. He says, be not envious toward wrongdoers. Do not be envious when people who are not following God, when they make a lot of money. Don't be envious of people who are not following God when they live in magnificent homes. Don't be envious of them when they receive tenured positions at the university. Don't be envious of them when they make straight A's. Don't be envious of them when they get the starting positions on the team. Don't be envious of them if if they get elected to a political office, a high-ranking office. Do not be envious if they get elected to Carline Mom of the Year. Don't get envious if they win the red velvet cake at the Booster Club raffle. Don't be envious of wrongdoers. Stephen Cole breaks this down in a little more detail. He writes, Your neighbor brags to you about how he cheats on his taxes each year. His home is loaded with the finest in furniture and appliances. He has two luxury cars and all the latest toys. They vacationed in Hawaii last year. (laughs) Some of y'all are going, "Eh, that's my neighbor. And he says this, you are honest and pay your taxes. You give faithfully to the church. Your furniture will be rejected by goodwill. It's bad then, right? You know? Your one clunker of a car is on its second 100,000 miles. And then he says this. And the closest thing to a vacation that you could afford last year was to manage to go to Charleston for a day. Yeah. Some of us have been there, right? I mean, we can feel that. But, but then he presses a little more and, and shares this picture. You're single and you're trying to follow the Lord. You only date Christian guys. Your last date was four years ago. The girl next door, though, she has no moral standards, and she's got handsome hunks lining up to see her. See, most of us, we've had an encounter with a wrongdoer, an evildoer. We've had an encounter with someone who seems to not just get away with their sin, but their sin itself seems to make them prosperous and successful. And after 60 years and a lot of experience in life, David says what 
about dealing with folks like that. He says, do not be envious. Don't, don't be envious. Don't get mad. Don't get angry. Don't get worked up when an evildoer has something good happen to them, even though they were doing evil. Do not be envious. Be cool. But why? Why should that be our reaction? Well, with every crash of the whip across his back, Jesus uttered nothing. He just kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He kept saying to his heart with all of the beatings, with all of the pain of the cross, my father ruleth over all. My father, his kingdom is forever. And evildoers and wrongdoers, he gets the last judgment call on them and no one else. But is there another reason not to fret and not to be envious of evildoers and wrongdoers than than just the example of Jesus? Is there another reason that, that Christians should be cool when we're facing a world of, of evildoers and, and wrongdoers? Yeah, there, there's another reason, and David tells us. Listen to verse 2. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. I need to update a statistic that I shared with you last week. Last week I shared that one out of every one person will die. Actually, that's still true. <laughs> no update necessary. And so when we look at this passage, they will wither quickly like the grass, they will fade like the green herb. We remind ourselves quickly, you know what, evildoers and wrongdoers, they will not live forever. They won't. So someone might say, so that's it? I mean, so, so we're just supposed to deal with the fact that evildoers and wrongdoers are doing evil and wrong things and, and that one day they're going to die so we should be fine with that and just ignore everything? No, by no means. We're still called to respond. And that's not what this passage means. Look, if somebody breaks into my house tonight, I'm not going to roll over and go back to sleep. I'm going to tell my wife to go downstairs and check on what's going on. You know, see what's happening down there. Let me know. Just text me. You know. Now, David's advice is not for us to do nothing. His advice after years on the earth is, oh, if I could plead with you to do something as you get older, learn to stop freaking out. Learn to stop fretting. Learn to stop being envious. It's going to happen from time to time, but, but don't let it be the pattern of who you are. We all have moments where we will freak out and we will fret. But the gospel keeps calling us to look in the mirror and say, was that a moment or is this who I usually am? And if it is who you usually are, if you look in the mirror and go, ah, that's me, then David has some amazing advice for you back in Psalm 103. If you're a believer, then your God ruleth over all, and his kingdom is forever. So you have every reason not to fret and not to freak out because you belong to him. 
And that can't be changed. David Guzik puts it this way. We think of a wicked man eating a magnificent dinner while a godly man goes hungry. The wicked man eats anything and everything he wants, and his table is loaded as he enjoys his meal. And then he says this. Then we see the bigger picture. He eats his last meal on death row. And in a moment, will face terrible judgment. Now with the larger perspective, the godly man doesn't envy or worry about the wicked man. No matter what an evildoer or wrongdoer may do today, if they refuse to repent and turn to Christ, they will be cut down like the grass in your front yard in death, and then they'll be cut down with the wrath of God. That's the promise of the one whose kingdom is forever. See, justice will be served. That's God's promise. So that's what we don't do. We don't fret. We don't freak out. We don't get heated up. We don't get envious. So what are we supposed to do? Well, David tells us, listen to verse 3. Trust in the Lord. Be cool and trust in the Lord. What does it mean to trust in the Lord? Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek. Blessed and happy and satisfied are people who are meek. Now, that word in 2018, meek sounds weak. Right? So, so what does meek really mean? Moses is one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world. By God's grace and power and authority, he led more than a million people out of a lifetime of slavery. This is what the Bible says about Moses, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now, the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. What does that mean, that he was very meek? Kent Hughes puts it this way. Moses was the most meek man on earth, but at the same time, Moses was a man who could act decisively. He could be as hard as nails, and he could rise to anger at the proper time. So there's a time to be as hard as nails, and there's a time to be angry. It's not all the time, but there are some times. I will just venture out on a little bit of a limb here as your pastor. I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky guy <laughs> most days. But I know when to get angry. And I will get angry when sin begins to define how we think and act, whether privately or publicly. There are moments where meekness says it's time to stop and worship Jesus again. Moses was meek. He could be hard as nails. He, he could be angry at the proper time, which there's not a lot of those times, just a, a few proper times. And then he says this. Those who are gentle and meek are immensely powerful people. Why? Because they are controlled by God. Moses was meek because he was controlled by the reality that he actually knew that his God ruleth over all. Moses was meek. He didn't freak out as the pattern of his life because he knew that God's kingdom was forever. 
That's how you get blessed and happy and satisfied through being meek. Because being meek means you keep surrendering to the power of God and you keep surrendering to the plans of God, even if those plans don't make a lick of sense to you or if you don't know what those plans are. See, to trust in the Lord means that you keep trusting in Him because, as the hymn says, He's proved Himself or and or and or. What you do is you keep singing to your soul, my God rules over all. But it's not just a mental thing. It's not like training your mind with, you know, catchy phrases. It's not just singing to your soul about the authority of God. No, it's, it's something that moves us into action. What kind of action? Look what Dave goes on to say in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and and cultivate faithfulness. Be cool and trust in the Lord. And be cool and do good. The math on this is super easy. One of the best ways to quit fretting and to quit freaking out and to quit getting worked up is to do something good for someone. (laughs) It's It's amazing. It works, you know. Be kind to your spouse or or your kids, do something kind for them. Do something kind for one of your neighbors. Go visit somebody in the hospital or an assisted living center. Go volunteer at, at God's Helping Hands or, or Mission Lexington. Write someone a, a handwritten note and mail it. Send someone an, an email and encourage them. Text someone that you know is having a rough week. Call somebody you haven't talked to in a long time. Give your pastor a gift card to go eat some barbecue, you know? I mean, be kind, you know? Be kind. Do good. But, but there's a lot of truth in that, right? Part of the reason that we get so fretful and so fearful and so worked up is that we're kind of in our own little cocoon of emotions, right? I mean, we're just not learning what it means to just kind of live for Jesus, now, again, we're going to have our moments and our days, but, but as a pattern, are we trusting in the Lord and are we doing good? Well, one of the things that will help us to trust in the Lord and do good is this last thing that David says. He says what? He says, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. What's that mean? Well, the original language kind of has the idea of, of feeding. So the picture here is, is feed on your faith. Feed on God's word. Let the, let the pages of the Bible be something that you're marinating on all the time. Keep it in your mind. Keep it in your heart. Why? Because here's the thing. Your news feed and your social media feed and the football game and the game that you play on your phone, none of those things are going to tell you that your God ruleth over all and that his kingdom is forever. In fact, they're going to pull you away from that truth. And so the reason we go to God's Word is because it keeps telling us, oh, yeah, Jesus wants me to remember I can keep entrusting myself to the one who judges righteously because he rules over all. And his kingdom, it's it's forever. Five years ago, Scotty Smith wrote a prayer on Psalm 37. Five years ago. I, I point that out because as you'll hear in just a moment, it's very relevant like he did it five minutes ago. This is just part of his prayer. 
Today, Father, I'm worked up over the apparent success of those who bring harm to others and even get rewarded for their madness. Whether it's the ongoing reach of terrorism, the evil exploits of trafficking, the gazillion dollar machine of pornography, the political posturing the last few weeks in Washington, or any of many other broken storylines in the world. How long, O Lord, before you send Jesus back to put all things right? How long? And his response is what happened in his heart and his mind after reading Psalm 37. I don't want you to miss that point. I'm not telling you to go read your Bible so you can check it off. I'm telling you to go read your Bible so that when you're sitting in the doctor's office, the truth of God will just erupt from your mind and your heart. I'm telling you to read your Bible so that when you find yourself face-to-face with an evildoer or a wrongdoer, especially if that person might be in your home or in your school or in your workplace or, heaven forbid, in the church, that you would look into that situation and say, wait a minute, this is real, but I know something that's true, and it lasts forever. So that morning, Scotty read Psalm 37, and he was a little worked up. And this is how Psalm 37 spoke to his heart. Your answer to me today, Lord, in this scripture is just what I need. You won't give me a date, but as always, you do give me yourself. I hear you loud and clear, Father. See, that's what the truth of the Bible can do for your heart and your mind. It can keep reminding you of the grace and the mercy and the peace and the love and the power that you have in Christ while evildoers and wrongdoers are screaming in your face. So it can bring that truth back to your heart. The truth of the Bible helps you see and hear and know reasons for you to be cool because it gives you reasons for why you don't have to fret and why you don't have to get worked up, and why you don't have to be envious. In short, what the Bible does is it feeds your faith. It feeds your faith. Spurgeon said this, faith cures fretting. You can ignore the rest of the sermon. You get those three words, you're good. Faith cures fretting. And he says this, sight is cross-eyed and views things only as they seem, hence her envy. So sight, all she produces is, is envy. Faith, though, has clear optics to behold things as they really are, hence her peace. Peace comes from faith, not, not foolish faith, not dreamy little dream faith. Now, we're, we're not believing in a fairy tale here. I mean, really, you got to work really, really hard. You have to toss out every ounce of your intelligence to look at the story of Scripture, the story of Jesus, even if you're not reading it from the Bible and go, yeah, that is all made up. I'm going to share some details of this sometime in the next few weeks, but I, I came across an article listening to a sermon this week, and the title of the article is why an atheist believes that Africa needs God. (laughs) It's amazing. 
It was written like 10 years ago, too. And basically what he said is, I went home to my village, my hometown, and it was completely transformed. And it wasn't just charity, and it wasn't just good deeds. There was something about this message of Jesus that changed everything. And yet he writes it while he doesn't believe in it. See, we're not believing in a fairy tale. We're not having faith in a fairy tale. We're not saying, oh, faith will give me peace. No. We're saying that the God of the universe has proven himself in so many different ways, even just through the person of Jesus, that we have every reason to know that if we keep doing life by sight, we're doing life cross-eyed. And we will not have peace with cross-eyed looking. We will have envy. And we will fret, and we will get worked up, and we will not be cool. But to walk by faith instead of sight means that our hearts continue to be convinced of these things that God has proven. And, and what happens is then we, we prove them to ourselves again. We remember these truths again and again and again. And all of a sudden, instead of us saying, oh, my, my sight is producing envy. What happens is our, our soul begins to say, oh, here's the gospel, hence your peace. Here's the glory of God, hence your peace. Here's the reality of Jesus, hence your peace. So this is the call of the gospel to me and to you today. Be cool and trust in the Lord.